You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, church, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture with you today, it's page 61 in your pew Bible right in front of you. Exodus 20, page 61. You know, over the last few months, I've enjoyed watching my son play in his first year in Little League. As a parent, it gives me great joy to see my kids developing new athletic skills and engaging in teamwork and enjoying the thrill of competition. Likewise, by playing sports, my kids learn the importance of boundaries. Boundaries, right? Because every sport has boundaries. The boundaries provide the lines in which the game is to be played. In football, the sidelines and the goal lines, they establish the boundaries. In basketball, the three-point line, the foul lines, the out-of-bounce line, they establish the boundaries. In baseball, you have the batter's box and you have the foul lines that establish the boundaries. And these boundaries are designed to give order to the game, order and direction to the game. If the game is to be played correctly, then it cannot be a free-for-all like little mini-kid soccer usually is, where everybody just kind of goes nuts, right? It has to be within the boundaries. Because if you remove the boundaries, you introduce chaos into the field. In fact, this is true with all types of boundaries in life. Think about a guardrail. What's the purpose of a guardrail? A guardrail gives you order and direction as you're driving and prevents you from going off of a cliff, right? Think of a fish tank, the boundaries of a fish tank. Now, yeah, there's limitations there, but the limitations are there for the good of the fish because what happens if the fish goes out of the tank? It dies, right? Well, in the same way, God has given us boundaries. And these God-given boundaries, they're designed for our good to give our lives order and direction. However, we're living in a day and age when people just want to have a free-for-all, right? They don't want boundaries. They don't want limitations. They want to play the game without any rules. But you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see the devastating results of this type of gameplay. It creates mass chaos, and people end up getting hurt in the process. So I would argue that God's way is the better way. In fact, Psalm uh, 1, verses 1 through 3, and there's so many, so many different verses I could have I chose, but this is a great one. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he, de- he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. that It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. You see, simply put, there is great blessing to those who listen to and walk within the boundaries that God has created. Well, this morning, as we continue our study in the life of Moses, we're going to find God establishing some very well-known boundaries or laws for his people. You know them as the Ten Commandments. And in doing so, we're going to learn a little bit more about the purpose of the Ten Commandments, why they mattered then, and how they apply to us Today And it's through our study we're going to be reminded of this important truth. The point of the law is to point us to the Savior. If you remember nothing else, the point of the law is to point us to the Savior. You're going to see this fleshed out in today's study. So let's bow our heads, let's pray, ask God's blessing as we hop into his word. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today. Thank you for the, the privilege it is to teach your precious word to your people. 
And I pray, Father God, that I would get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and to everyone that's here today, that we would leave here closer to Jesus than we, when we arrived, that we would leave here more thankful for Jesus than when we arrived. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so before we jump into today's text, can I give you some context as to what's happening here? Is that okay? Can we do that really quick? All right, so, so just hang out with me because I'm going to explain a little bit about Exodus 19. We're in Exodus 20 today, so let me explain. So in Exodus 19, Moses and the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. And there God spoke to Moses and he declared that he was going to establish a covenant with his people. A covenant that, if obeyed, would bring blessing to the Israelites. So Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, it's important to note that this covenant, which consisted of the Old Testament law, was given specifically to the Israelites. I'll say that again. It was given specifically to the Israelites. Romans 9.4 says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Now, this is an important distinction, distinction because much of what's written in the Old Testament law, though beneficial to learn from, does not apply to believers today. So if you're a new believer in this room, I, I would not suggest the first book you read is like Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers, okay? Because there's a lot of things in there that maybe you're just not going to jive or not going to make a ton of sense to you. For example, the Old Testament law can be divided into three parts. You've got the moral law, you've got the civil law, and you've got the ceremonial law. Now, the civil law established how to judge the affairs of the Israelites. The ceremonial law established the worship practices for the Israelites, including things like sacrifices, how ceremonies were to be performed, how to build the tabernacle, and so forth. And again, even though these laws are important to study, they're not applicable under the new covenant made through Jesus. Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled and put an end to the Old Testament law. And we're going to understand more of what that means, what that looks like as we dive into our study. But he fulfilled and he put an end to Old Testament law, and he replaced it with a new law, which he described in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. He said this, he said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he said, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because the entire law, everything that was written in the entire law, all the demands of the prophets, they're based on these two commandments. In other words, for the, for the church today, if we can get these two commandments right, everything else falls into place. These are the two commandments we need to get right. However, even though we're no longer bound by the letter of the Old Testament law, we are still bound by the spirit of the Old Testament law in regard to the moral law. Why? Because the moral law, more specifically the Ten Commandments, serve as a practical expression of how we love God and how we love others. It's kind of like the baseline for how we do this thing. You see, a general rule of thumb is that any moral command that's in the Old Testament 
that we find repeated in the New Testament is an example of a timeless truth that applies to all believers. Are you with me so far? So with the impossible exception of keeping holy the Sabbath, because that had a really special meaning for the Israelites, Jesus and the apostles not only referenced, but they also built upon the Ten Commandments. We know that because we studied the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago. So this tells us that both in principle and in practice, they still apply today. Now, if you're still tracking, say, I'm tracking. Good. So a study that was done a few years ago revealed that more Americans were able to name the ingredients in a Big Mac than they were able to name the Ten Commandments. Therefore, I think it would be safe for us to begin by reading through the Ten Commandments, and then we'll break this down a little bit more. So we're in Exodus chapter 20. Follow along with me, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I've heard it said, church, that the reason why we have thousands upon thousands of laws written on paper today is because we fail to obey 10 laws that were written in stone. Sad to say there's a lot of truth to that statement, isn't there? And among the many laws that we have written on paper today are many stupid but true laws. A lot of stupid but true laws out there. For example, in Nebraska, parents can be arrested if their kids burp in church. I'd like to see that happen here. That'd be pretty funny, actually. In Oklahoma, it's illegal to make ugly faces at a dog. And in West Virginia, you can't go to school with your, teeth, with your breath smelling like wild onions which I'm for that. I think that's cool. But see, church, we could spend all day debating the many of the pointless laws that have been passed through the years. However, there's one law or set of laws that no one can debate because they were established by the perfect lawgiver, and that is God's law. Psalm 19.7 declares the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so in today's study, we're going to learn three important realities regarding God's law. And so let's begin by looking at the first. The law reveals God's unchanging standards. Leviticus 11.44, it's on the screen. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. So this was like a command to the Israelites. Be holy, for I am holy. 
well, for those of you who have visited Lancaster, you, you know that it's Amish country down there, right? I love going down there. Carrie and I love visiting Lancaster. Or Lancaster, depending on you know, which persuasion you are. I used to be a Lancaster guy, but now I'm Lancaster. So now you guys know. That's information that you wanted to know today. Anyway, but if you know anything about the Amish, you know that they have their own way of doing life. They dress a certain way, behave a certain way, do business a certain way, refuse to do certain things to maintain this degree of separation from the world around them. They refuse to conform to the social norms. And even though they engage in these practices for very misguided and very unnecessary reasons, we are not, I am not preaching you need to become Amish today by any stretch, no one could deny that the Amish, they serve as a vivid illustration of what it looks like to set yourself apart, yes? Well, in the same way, one of the purposes for the Ten Commandments was to establish a standard of living that would set God's people apart from the pagan world around them. In fact, the word holy, it literally means to be set apart, to be different, to be unique. Truth be told, thousands of years later, nothing's really changed between when the Ten Commandments uh, were given and now. That is still God's calling for his people. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite then or a believer now. We are called to be set apart. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to, the pattern of, or conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, even the Greek word ecclesia for church is ecclesia, which means called out ones. You see, God has always desired, that's never changed, unchanging standard, that his people look different than the world. And the primary way to look different than the world is not by putting on an Amish lifestyle, it's by putting on a biblical lifestyle. A biblical lifestyle. A lifestyle of obedience to God's commands. 1 John 3.24 says... Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And so the Ten Commandments are helpful because they provide a basic framework for what obedient, godly living looks like. When God's people live according to these holy standards, not only will it go well for them, but it will give God glory because it, the, the commandments are really an outward expression of God's righteousness and God's character. It reflects his holiness. However, as we're soon going to see, even though the Ten Commandments reveal the righteousness of God, they also deeply reveal, or real, excuse me, reveal the deeply rooted unrighteousness of man. Let's look at the second reality of the moral law, and it's this. The law reveals our underlying sinfulness. God's unchanging standards shows our underlying sinfulness. Look on the screen, Romans 3.20. It says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let that sink in. No one can ever be made right with God by obeying him, by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. I've heard it said that the, the law is like a mirror. When you look into a mirror, you see that your hair needs to be combed, your face needs to be cleaned, your teeth need to be brushed, your tie needs to be straightened. The mirror reveals what is wrong that needs to be made right. 
Now the mirror doesn't actually comb the hair, wipe the face, brush the teeth, or tie the tie. It's only there to reveal, not to fix. Well, in the same way, God's law reveals what's wrong in our lives by showing us a reflection of who we really are. In other words, it shows how dirty and sinful we really are and how far we've fallen short of God's holy standards for righteousness. The law is there to reveal, not to fix. Now, to prove this point, we're going to do a little group exercise. Can we do that today? Can we do a little group exercise? Okay. So we're going to do a little group exercise. We're going to call it the Are You a Good Person test. Okay? There it is. Are you a good person test? You see, there are many people who believe that as long as they live a relatively good and moral life, that they will go to heaven when they die. I used to believe, I used to be one of those people, that my good outweighs my bad, I'll go to heaven when I die. In fact, most people already believe that they are inherently a good person. That's actually what the world preaches. That's the culture's uh, gospel, is that we're all kind of born inherently good, and the biblical approach is, no, we're all kind of born inherently bad. But anyway, the are you a good person test. We're going to put this one to the test. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For, read this with me, all sin is contrary to the law of God. Okay, sin is contrary to the law of God. So if sin is contrary to the law of God, then the best way to determine our goodness is to measure it against God's perfect law, the Ten Commandments. And so therefore, let's begin by answering this simple question rhetorically. You don't have to answer out loud. Have you kept the Ten Commandments? Just let that sink in. Have I kept the Ten Commandments? Now, if you're like most people, then you're probably thinking, well, I'm not perfect, but for the most part I have. Okay, let's go with that. The Ninth Commandment says you shall not lie. How many lies have you told? How many lies have you told? Even one lie is too many. And what do you call someone who lies? A liar. A liar. Fair enough. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. How about the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything in your life, even if it was small? What do you call someone who steals? Not a stealer. Okay, a stealer is a terrible football team from Pittsburgh. You call... Oh, not... Get out of here. You call someone who steals a thief, not a stealer, okay? Man, apparently we have a lot of Steelers fans in the church today. I finally woke you all up. Anyway, but look at 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. How about the third commandment? You shall not take God's name in vain. Have we ever used God's name as a curse word? Even flippant expressions, flippant uses of God's name, like saying, oh my God, or saying Jesus' name out of context, that's using God's name in vain. It's an irreverent use of his name. And the Bible calls this blasphemy, and it's a very serious sin in the eyes of God. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, holy and awesome is his name. And if that's the case, then we should treat it as such. I remember years ago working at Circuit City, and some of my coworkers, they were like professionals at taking God's name in vain. You guys remember Circuit City, by the way? They're the ones that Best Buy beat. Anyway. Now, I can handle pretty much anything, but after a while, man, the constant, like, flippant uses and superficial uses of God's name, they just get under my skin. 
So anyway, I developed a subtle way of nipping it in the bud. When they used to use God's name in vain, I would just go up to them and ask, may I join you? And perplexed, they'd look at me and say, huh? To which I would reply, oh, well, I heard you say the name Jesus. I figured you were praying and that I would join you. Well, needless to say, they eventually got the message. <laughs> they didn't want to pray in the middle of Circuit City. How about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Like, everybody's like, all right. I'm good. I hope you're good. My goodness. <laughs> Murderers in the room. We love you, though. Jesus loves you, but still kind of freaky. But anyway... Perhaps you think you're in the clear on this one. I didn't murder anybody. I'm in good shape. But you forgot what we studied a few months ago. You forgot the Sermon on the Mount. Because look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, 22, 21 and 22. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you are fool, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. Yikes. You see, here Jesus equates being angry with being a murderer. Because at its core, the act of murder is really birthed out of a sinful condition of the heart. How about the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Again, maybe you're breathing like a sigh of relief saying, all right, I'm good on this one. But don't get too confident because you forgot about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How you doing? Church, these are just five of the Ten Commandments. And if you're completely honest this morning, then everyone here would admit that you are lying, thieving, blasphemous, murderers, adulterers at heart. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, all right, I admit I'm not perfect, but compared to other people like Hitler, I'm a saint. That may be true. Here's the problem. God does not measure your righteousness or your goodness against other people. He measures it against his holy standards. And not to mention, even if you're a better person than the guy down the road, you can't escape James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law, read this with me, but fails at one point, has become accountable for all of it. Church, there's no way around it. As the classic song says, you and I are bad to the bone. Romans 3, 10 through 12, puts it quite bluntly. It says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, we're kind of giggling and laughing a little bit, but I want you to understand the seriousness of, of what God's Word teaches. You might be thinking, okay, I admit that I've broken some of God's standards, but in the end, He's a forgiving God, right? I mean, when I die, He's going to forgive me for my sins. Well, let's try that in a courtroom. If you just committed murder and you stood before the judge, would it be just for the judge to just 
I'm going to let that one slide. You're good. Be free. Of course not. That's not justice. The punishment must fit the crime, and murderers face a death penalty. Well, according to the Bible, because God is a just judge, our sins, they just cannot go unpunished. He is, he is holy. He is the definition of, of holiness. God is holy. He cannot have anything to do with sin. Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, don't miss this devastating reality. If you were to die today in your sinful state and stand before God, you will be sentenced to an eternity in hell. In fact, there's no amount of good that you or I can do to make up for our sin against God. You can't outgood God. Like, you can't outgood your bad. There's no amount of penance that we can pay that would be enough to get us into heaven. That's the sobering truth. You know, earlier I said that but the law is like a mirror. It's also like an x-ray, kind of the same deal. It reveals our problem, cannot fix our problem. And in our own strength, we cannot fix our problem. When I was in high school, I broke my wrist by bumping into a classmate, classmate nicknamed Boom Boom. Literally, I bumped into Boom Boom, I fell down, and I went Boom Boom, and I broke my wrist. And when I got to the hospital, the x-ray showed that I broke my wrist in several places. However, even though I was aware of my problem, I couldn't fix my problem. I needed a physician to fix my problem. Well, in the same way, the law reveals our underlying problem of sinfulness. And we need a great physician to fix it. And fortunately for us, that's exactly who God provided. This brings us to the third reality of the law. The law reveals our undeniable need for a Savior. Undeniable need for a Savior. Look at Galatians 3.11. It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, by faith. As many of you are aware, there's a law that we have in our legal world. It's called the law of double jeopardy. And the law of double jeopardy simply says that you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. You see, God's law, it required perfect obedience. And since none of us are perfect and we're all guilty of breaking God's law, here's the beauty. God, in his love, stood trial for us. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that word pro prohibi propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. 2,000 years ago, God became a man in Jesus and lived a perfect, sinless life, obeyed the law perfectly. He died on a cross, taking your sins and my sins upon himself. In other words, Jesus paid the penalty for our crimes against God. Jesus took all that on himself. That's what the cross symbolizes. Isaiah 53.5 says he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, it was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Church, the sacrificial death of Christ satisfied all of the demands of God's justice and appeased his wrath against us. 
In other words, for those who believe in Jesus, listen, if you believe in Jesus, then the law of double jeopardy does not apply, or excuse me, does apply to you. You will never have to stand trial for your sins because Jesus already stood trial for you. And as a result, you will be saved from eternal punishment and receive the free gift of eternal life. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given, and as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Friends, don't miss this wonderful truth. And don't, don't ever let it become commonplace in your life. Don't ever lose the wonder of what God did for you and I. Because we're saved by grace and not good works, we no longer have to live in fear of not being good enough to get into heaven. I'm telling you, we live in an area right now where most people believe that you need to be good enough to get into heaven. They're trusting in their good works. I was raised in that faith. So we're surrounded by people who think that way. And people who think really serious about it, they're scared to death to die because they don't know where they're going. Friends, we don't have to live in fear of not being good enough because Jesus took care of all that for us. When we fall short of obeying God's law, and we will, the blood of Jesus covers us. Romans 5, 9 says, since we have been made right with God, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. I love what the late Billy Graham said. He said, be assured that there is no sin that you have ever committed that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. Church, you're a little sleepy today. Can we praise God for this amazing truth? Come on. Can we praise God? For this? this is big. This is huge. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what, what Joe wants to preach over in Japan. This is what we want to preach in our communities. This is, this is the news that you want to share with your family, your friends, your loved ones, that you can be saved from eternal condemnation by placing your faith in Jesus. This is big. This is it. This is our faith. Now, again, this wonderful truth only applies if you're a believer. Remember, the righteous live not by keeping the law. You can try, but good luck. The righteous live by faith. And in order to be declared righteous in the eyes of God, you need to personally place, place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, not by your good works. Jesus said it best in John 5, 24. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, if our salvation was dependent upon ourselves, which unfortunately there are some pastors that preach that. I just don't know where they get it from. It's not in here. If our salvation, if we had to earn our own salvation, then the cross was meaningless. Why did Jesus go to the cross? And what's up with all these verses I just read that say we cannot be saved by the law? No, it's, it's saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Pass from death to life. So this leads us back to today's truth to remember. The point of the law is to point us to a Savior. That's the ultimate point of the law. Sure, yeah, it's God's standards. It's how he wants us to live. Ultimately, it shows us how we can't do it in our own strength. We need a Savior. It points us to Christ. 
And so a couple of things as I close. If you're here this morning, I want you to know that you can pass from death to life even right now by praying the prayer of faith. Something as simple as, God, I understand that I've broken your law and that I've sinned against you. And I ask for your forgiveness and I thank you that Jesus suffered and died on the cross in my place and rose again. And now I place my trust in him as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And if you're here and, and you prayed a prayer like that or you want to pray like that and you mean it, then I want you to know that your sins are forgiven and you will be given the free gift of eternal life. You say, that's too easy. No, it's not. It, it's not too easy because you know what? Jesus had to go to the cross to make that happen. And if belief was so easy, then how come when you read the book of John, you read it all through the Gospels, but especially the book of John, you just have so many people not believing in Jesus. It's not easy believism. It, there's no such thing as easy believism. You believe and you're saved. That's what scripture teaches. And it's not as easy as we make it out to be. But I want you to know if you've made this decision for the first time today or you want to, let us know by, by marking it on your connect card and putting it in the gray basket on your way out. It would be our joy to celebrate with you and, and begin praying for you. And likewise, I want to encourage you to come forward after the service. You can grab an information packet up front here. That's going to be super helpful to you as you get started in your walk with Jesus. You know, I begin today's sermon by talking about the benefits of having boundaries and how they give our lives order and direction. Well, as we've seen this morning, God's boundaries not only direct us to our Savior, but church, they do demonstrate the type of holy living that is characteristic of our Savior and those that follow him. It's this type of holy living that, yes, we are not capable of in our own power, but we are capable of it when the Holy Spirit's power is working within us. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So church, as I close, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal any sinful behavior that may be holding you back from living that godly, set-apart life that God has called you to. And then take some time to confess and repent those sins to the Lord, leaving them here today, leaving them at the cross today. You will be glad you did, and your fellowship with the Lord will be stronger as a result. Acts 3.19 and 20 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing. See, repentance bring ref brings refreshment, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen? So this time I'd like to invite the praise team to come forward and as they do, we're going to pray together. When the song, at the end of the closing song as well, uh, whoever is here from our, pray, our prayer team, they're going to come up front as well and be available to pray with you after the service. Let's bow our heads and thank the Lord for, for his words today. God, I want to thank you for the wonderful reminder that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Lord, that we don't have to work hard to earn your favor, that we don't have to work hard, Lord, for our own salvation, that you loved us so much that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And your word teaches that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, thank you so much for that free gift, God. And that is the gift that we need to share and celebrate and communicate to all those we come in contact with. Lord, there are so many people that are lost and dying today. May the reminder of what we heard from your word today propel us to be lights in the darkness. Lord, thank you that you've given us boundaries to live by because we know that they're for our good and for your glory. And thank you so much, Lord, for being there when we fall short and covering us with the blood of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.